0: to another episode of Closing the Loop. My name is John Vallis and today's guest is Daniel Buckner. Daniel is the Senior Product Manager for Decentralized Identity at Microsoft, which in March of 2021 culminated in the launch of Ion. Ion is an open, public, permissionless layer 2 decentralized identifier network that runs atop the Bitcoin time chain. As life becomes increasingly digital and concerns around privacy and control of personal data become increasingly important, we thought it would be interesting to speak with Daniel to see how he and the team at Ion are leveraging Bitcoin's unique attributes to build solutions that put control of data back where it belongs, in the hands of each individual. If you're listening to this show on a podcasting 2.0 app, thank you for supporting the emerging value-for-value publishing model. I'll also extend a thank you on behalf of the Human Rights Foundation, as Daniel has graciously directed his streaming sats to that organization, so that as long as you're listening, you'll be donating and supporting their important work. If you have any feedback on the show or have any suggestions for future guests, please feel free to reach out and let me know. Enjoy. Daniel, I uh, welcome to the show. I'm I'm excited for this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, this is a rabbit hole. This is something that I and I think probably a lot of people uh, have not given much consideration to before. Uh, haven't thought too much about identity beyond you know very rudimentary perhaps privacy considerations. And uh, in preparation for this conversation, I realized that this is a rabbit hole unto itself. Uh, and there's a lot of implications, and there's a lot of detail. And what it's meant is that I don't really know how to attack a subject like this or a conversation like this. So what I'm gonna get you to do is just you know introduce yourself and the work you're doing first, and then we'll see uh, you know we'll see where the conversation goes.
1: Okay, great. yeah, so my name is Daniel Buckner. I work at Microsoft on the decentralized identity technologies and initiatives we have going. Um, those, Initiatives were started a number of years ago uh, with the intent to create a form of identity that, that people own. Um, and that's maybe something that people aren't aren't used to or familiar with, but it's it's a little different than the identity systems we, we work on today and that we have in the world today um, in some key ways, I think, that are really enabling for people. And so maybe I'll try and illustrate just uh, compare contrast with, with uh, the identity systems of today and, and the DID-based world. Um, identity systems today, you all use them. Uh, you use email addresses to log into things. You might use um, two-factor authentication. You might use social authentication using, you know, OAuth from one social provider to log into other websites, um, or even WebAuthn with um, hardware-bound tokens that are still bound to a domain, right? Now, all of those things are in essence based on accounts that are registered with intermediaries. And those accounts are your digital, the, your roots of digital identity, right? So the, the the problem we've created for ourselves, and you know, I'll give some examples of this, is that we've sort of commingled the root of your identity, which kind of should be yours independent of the accounts that you might have with apps and services, with all of those various apps and service providers. And it seems fine for most of the time, but, it, but you can run into some problems. Uh, a really, really great example is Twitter, right? So Twitter um, and, and LinkedIn and other social networks, you might build, uh, you know, a following or you build business connections or personal or social connections over a long period of time. And those are really important to you. Um, you know, I don't think anyone has a Rolodex at the side of their bed anymore, with all the names of the people they know and all their phone numbers, right? That's that's kind of right. not happening or white pages. A lot of people sort of resort to whatever they entered in their phone. Maybe they have a phone number, but a lot of people connect through, uh, you know, DMs on Twitter and and you know back channels on LinkedIn stuff like that. Now, the issue is if for whatever reason a platform provider that you've invested in building a significant portion of your identity with and a and, and provenance and all these connections with for whatever reason, uh, decides they don't want to, you know, you to be a member of their platform anymore. Uh, Not only do they just sort of shut off, you know, their resource allotment to you, like the ability to sort of use their servers to post things and do that stuff. Implicitly, because the root of your identity is tied to those identifiers, like your Twitter handle and your LinkedIn ID and all these other things, they are taking your connections and and all those things you built. Over time, right, and in some cases that can be very valuable. I mean, you might be like an influencer on you know some social site, right, and you got millions of followers. That's how you like make your money. I'm not you know saying that's a, that's an awesome profession in some senses, but you know it might be someone's someone's a paycheck, right? And True. so it has real world implications for people, and that's not the best outcome. And I, I think that what we're trying to do with DIDs is separate the root of your identity, uh, which you should own from any other engagements or provider style provisions you might have uh, in the world. And so what a, what a DID world could look like, uh, if we use Twitter as the example again, is you know I, I go on this decentralized network of Twitter and I have a DID, an identifier that I wholly own just like I would own a Bitcoin address, right? And I can prove that I own it because I own, I own keys that back it. Um, and that's, that's more or less how DIDs work. Uh, And I I sort of start interacting. And when I connect to people, they follow my DID. They don't follow a centralized Twitter name, right? They follow an ID that is wholly mine. And maybe my tweets in the future and and other connections and like the, the digital phone book, as it were, of people that I meet over time, get stored in what we like to call personal data store. So I connect my DID to a personal data store that can live on my devices and simultaneously, potentially on a cloud provider, kind of like you might have email, you know, with a provider. But the providers can't ever just cut you off because you always have your data with you. And what that means is that when people go to fetch your tweets or engage with you or connect with you socially or for business purposes, even if a particular application, which at that point just becomes a viewing window, um, says I don't want to let you, you know, your DID interact with me anymore. Your tweets are still yours; they're in your personal data store. Um, people can still fetch them because everything is routed through an ID you own and a routing network that's independent of any provider. And I think that that's, that's the core of decentralized identifiers and the beginning of decentralized identity.
0: Right. And I mean, just on that point, how how do you square, like, let's take an example like that. Are, are you saying that in, in such an example, and I realize there's a tremendous number of applications that are like highly data heavy and involved and some that are just, you know, the complete opposite and you're mm-hmm. just verifying something. Yeah. But in that, in that example, uh, you know, would you have to st- like, would you be storing an entire a copy of everything you do on a given platform such that if you were removed, you could reboot your history on that platform and connect with people without interruption? Is that, is that what you're saying?
1: That's essentially what, what we're uh, trying to build out in, in Diff that centralized any foundation and other places that are working on these open source components um, is, is all the tools you would need to do that to realize an application space where as a developer of any sort of application, I might want to elect to store my application data that's specific to that user with the user. I could store it, you know, I could also store it in a centralized server if I wanted to, but the user always has a copy. It's always dually accessible and there's no like there's no kill switch. There's no shutoff point. It's always, it's always the individuals. And that data can be really anything, right? All tweets are little signed data objects that come from an ID. Um, a driver's license is a signed data object that c- comes is to an ID, potentially co-signed by some authority or something of that nature. Um, all of these things are just pieces of identity data in the end, right? Mm-hmm. And you should be in control of who you want to exchange them with, how you want to publish them, and who can access them.
0: Right. And so tell me a little bit about like what specifically ION is doing as a initial step along this, what I'm sure is going to be a, you know, multi-decade uh, process probably.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, you know, we're, we're still at the onset. I mean, I started this work, I actually started this work back at Mozilla when I worked at Mozilla and, you know, a, a decade ago now. Um, and that's, that's where we first kind of got into it and it was f- to, to write decentralized applications. And I don't mean, dApps that have come been commandeered by certain, you know, cryptocurrency people into meaning these, you know, smart contract financial instruments. I mean, true dApps, like like a dApp where instead of having a to-do list like Google Keep that is on Google servers, I want my to-dos, you know, somewhere with me and encrypted mm. for me. So I, I, we start, I started in this area at Mozilla trying to do that. And sort of through a couple of years of working on it found out that really identity is the, the linchpin here that's the thing that is kind of grounds it all without that you you can't do any of the rest of this stuff um so where is ion fit into this well we're building the components in diff to, to kind of do this full you know end to end that we're talking about with applications ion specifically is about decentralized identifiers right and people really they confuse identifiers with uh identity and identification, which are actually three separate things. Um, So let's talk a little bit about ION and exactly what it does and doesn't do, because it doesn't do a lot. ION is an implementation of a forthcoming and emerging standard from W3C called decentralized identifiers. Uh, What a decentralized identifier is, is you could just think about it as sort of a garbled email address, but you own it. It's not rooted in some domain from DNS, right? It's not rooted in some company's provided service. It's, a, it's an ID you own. And this ID is paired with keys, you know, one or more public keys that prove can prove you own it, and routing endpoints. So if someone was to look this ID up, like they kind of would a web page, you know, put it in your browser, browser hits DNS and delivers the web page, um, they would get this document back um, that provides the keys and endpoints for routing. And so you could find someone's DID on the ground or exchange it with them, you know, over text or whatever you have, you know, whatever, however way you want to connect and be able to look that idea up, find out where to speak to them and have keys to be able to say encrypt messages to them or do do any of these things. So that's a standard um, that's going through Ion is an implementation of that standard on top of Bitcoin. So what it does is provides you the capability to create as many DIDs as you want. Doesn't mean there's just one. That's something people kind of get twisted about. Like, oh, it's one ID to track me everywhere. It's, it's not about that. You might have a few public IDs that you create for maybe your social persona. Maybe you have a family life DID you create. You don't share with many people. You might have like a career one that you attach different stuff to. And then you may have lots of private ones that you keep just between specific connections or groups of connections. And so what ION does is let you create those IDs and manage the keys and make sure that everyone can look them up and so it kind of forms the basis. Ion does not contain any actual identity data. It's not where you store the application data. It's not where you, you know, you store credentials or do any of those exchanges. You don't need to do Ion operations to authenticate, right? All of the authentication and the creation of credentials and everything else you do in terms of identity data is above Ion. That's what you do once you have an ID and you have the keys, then you start, you know, interacting over more, a traditional means, right? Might contact a server and prove, you know, I have an ID through the key. So that's that's Ion, and that's the identifier piece. And the other ones to quickly touch on is identification. People get a little bit scared when they say identifiers. I don't want to be identified. And it, it just because you have an identifier, which is just a string that's unique in the world that you can prove ownership over, doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's identifying you, right, as a person. Um, just like a Bitcoin address doesn't you know, it doesn't say my name on it, right? It's, it's pseudonymous. So too are DIDs unless you attach data to them. So a DID is born at birth. It's just got sort of a big garbled string of numbers that has some keys that back it. If you never ever attach anything triangulating or, you know, um, fingerprintable to it, of course, it's not going to have that ability. Um, so that's one thing to understand is don't be scared of identifiers because it ta- contains the root word of identity and identification.
0: But is there any utility to an identifier if there's no data attached to it?
1: Well, it depends, right? It depends on what you're doing. Like you might have, um, you might have a very secretive identifier relationships where you meet someone in person you exchange a specific identifier for that relationship. And Mm -hmm. because inherently DIDs have routing built in, you might want to send them encrypted messages. Maybe you never even know their name. They have your DID, um, you have theirs, and you know how to route messages to them, right? The signal use case, for instance, instead of having phone numbers, right? Um, so it could be incredibly helpful. Now, you can argue that that data you're divulging, you know, when you send the messages could have, you know, um, information about you personally. Um, but certainly, I would argue, yeah, you're right. You need, you need to do things with your IDs for them to have value certainly. And those are usually data exchanges. But it doesn't necessarily mean you have one ID that you're attaching everything to and you're tracked everywhere. And I think that's the big thing to remember.
0: Right. And so one could imagine that getting tangly very quickly. So are you saying that what Ion is meant to be is a platform for managing the different keys associated with your different identifiers—is that what?
1: Yeah, it, it so it doesn't understand that there's a logical person named Dan that might have you know 20 different IDs that he uses in different contexts. It doesn't understand that. It just knows, hey, an ID was created, it was registered with me. Just like if someone sends a Bitcoin address to UTXO, there's an allotment there, and that happens. Bitcoin doesn't know who who it is. It just like you know, keeps track of the value. That's what I. That's what I, Ion does. It just says. Hey, here's another ID, and these are the current keys associated. And when I want to roll keys, maybe I get a new phone or something. I go and do an operation that rolls like the old key from the old phone, and you know, adds the new one. For instance, it doesn't know, you know, that two identities that I have, or two identifiers I have, may be related. It sees them all as atomic. Uh, in right. Sense. And, mm-hmm.
0: and and so the the premise, like the the primary value prop here, is having the option. To relinquish as little data as is necessary to engage with the world uh, through the services that you may want to avail of, right? Like that's the punchline here.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so with D- so there's a l- let's talk about the features and capability differences between each one of the components from a DID perspective. It's giving you the ability to have one or more identifiers that you you truly do own, um, and that's different than today, right? You, you don't own any of your identifiers today right? So that's a huge leap forward. Now, once you have identifiers, um, you need some other technology to help you minimally disclose things. You kind of talked about this a little bit, right? That happens with, you know, uh, when you bring to bear things like zero knowledge proofs, which we do for credentials, the idea that I might want to get a credential, and maybe it can prove all these things about me, right? But I don't want to disclose all of those things. So I have some credential that the driver's license is always the example people use, it has like your, you know, your home address on it. But you go somewhere and you're just trying to prove that you're of a certain age. So you don't want to disclose, you don't want to show that to the bouncer, right? You're a, you're a young woman or something. You're like, I don't want this guy to know where I live, man. So what zero knowledge proofs help you do is you can get a credential and through an unlinkable way, you can present that credential so they can't track you and, and you know, your, your vending of that. And you can blind values that you don't want to hand out. So when you take DIDs, And some of the more cryptographic, some of the cryptographic primitives like snarks, bulletproofs, um, BBS, you can start disclosing data in a very privacy
0: preserving manner. Right. Mm -hmm. I guess because, you know, one of the big challenge, you know, the bad data in, bad data out sort of hurdle Mm -hmm. that anyone attempting to do something like this. And I guess as you were just saying that the other thing that you'd have to obviously try to mitigate is like. The propensity or the possibility to aggregate aggregate data. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but over time, validators or authenticators of data help to expand the utility of a certain identifier, so that uh, to to I guess to grow the the bin of zero knowledge proofs that are available to you to to authenticate certain data, and there would be a danger that somehow it would aggregate. So how do you how do you I guess combat or approach those two issues?
1: Yeah, so so this is this is it's a great question. And how you do that is when you issue zero knowledge proofs, like, like let's say we use that example of a credential that's maybe a sensitive credential, like a driver's license or something of that nature. Now, I do a cryptographic exchange with the issuer. It could be like you know obviously an authority or something near you're trying to drive. They issue you a credential. That credential um, is issued to a blinded cryptographic Um, primitive. So so think about it as like a new key pair that you've created for them. It doesn't Mm -hmm. actually have to be inextricably linked to any one ID that you hold of the 20 that I may hold, but I can use any one of the IDs that I hold to to be able to vend it. So the question becomes, if there's a relying party that says, I want you to prove your age, I'm asking in my head, two questions. One, um, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll prove my age to you, And and that's fine. I'm only going to show you the values that I need to. And then the second question is, do I actually want a persistent connection with you? Because if I just give you the sort of blinded, unlinkable credential, they don't have the ability to go to another relying party who might ask for the same credential and compare notes and sort of create that aggregated view, because that's how the cryptography works um, with snarks, like, you know, you can look up Spartan and others. So it, it keeps that from being the case. It's your choice if you want to additionally link your presentation of that credential to a given person to a DID that allows for future routing and linkability. One reason you might do that is if you say, look, I'm entering into a long lasting business relationship or something with this counterparty. So I'm going to give you a credential and I'm going to also disclose within that that presentation a, a DID. And that's going to give you the endpoints and this the ability to message me because in the future, you might want to asynchronously reach out and say, hey, Dan, you know, that thing we talked about five days is ready. Now, here's the conduit to do so. And you really would only connect a DID to a relationship if you wanted that. If you're just saying, I want to fire and forget, like I go by the liquor store uh, and I'm on vacation and I'm never going to be there again, right? I'm never going by there again. So why would I give an ID out that creates a durable connection that they can connect to me? I can actually just vend the proof, period, in an untraceable way. So it's a question of what your what your goals are uh, in this
0: yeah. scenario. And how do you see this being kind of seamlessly integrated in those transactions as they occur, right? So like, let's take, I guess, you know, an in-person liquor store is not a great example, but let's say like an online transaction. Like when I'm making a payment, for example, like how do I select how much and which data I would like to exchange with the, you know, the party with whom I'm, I'm transacting. Do you know what
1: I mean? Absolutely. So, so there's a couple standards that are being developed right now that, you know, we've implemented early versions of, um, one's this presentation exchange standard, whereby someone who's a relying party who wants to ask you for something, they, they kind of fill out this little requirement sheet as it were. And it says, you know, I need you to give me a piece of data or credential that's like of this shape, this type And then I need the data inside. I need at least these three fields out of 10. And I need those three fields of data to be, you know, you know, this number needs to be over 10 and, you know, that sort of thing. And they're going to tell you like, what's going to be a valid submission to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you on your phone, we, we do this through Authenticator and there's several other wallets for, to help you with this, you know, show you something that says, Hey, you know, this relying party is asking for a credential of this type. We located you know, three in your wallet that are candidates that like you could use, and they want these three values, right? And we're not going to disclose these other seven values. Do you want to do that? Like, you know, is this something you want to go forward with? And then when you click yes, you know, then it's transmitted to the relying party, um, just the values that are necessary. And we're working on the the zero knowledge proof aspect. We have the basic credentials done. The zero knowledge proof is coming. uh, And that allows you to to facilitate these exchanges. So you're going to have wallet applications on your phone that help you with this experience much the way that web browsers help you download and manage favorites and web pages and all that that good stuff.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. I, I presume, so if, if Ion is kind of the interface to manage this stuff, um, I, I understand that, you know, basically users can use Ion servers or they can, you know, run their own node effectively to... Yeah, so, to so-
1: to, to be clear with ion, So ion doesn't help you, it doesn't have any you know great GUIs and stuff in it. Ion is is a low level substrate. It's the equivalent of like DNS, right? It's gotcha, it's gotcha. It's the system that records the current quote unquote certificates, you know, public key pairs with the identifiers and that sort of thing. It's it's it, it, it's a lot of work and it, it to get the scalable system, but it's not super sexy <laughs> at the end. It's right, like right. you know what I mean? All the management happens like up in the wallet layer. And that's kind of, that's where all the the action happens, is sort of above Ion uh, in that and sense. And
0: are there wallets in existence yet that, that interact with Ion, for example? Yeah,
1: yeah. So so to talk about Ion, I know you brought up like running nodes and stuff. Um, there are wallets. There's a number of wallets that have integrated it. Our own wallet has integrated it. It's called Microsoft Authenticator. Um, we have in private preview the integration of that. So you can you know go in and you can activate. It'll, behind the scenes, it'll get you some DIDs. It doesn't really expose the DID concept to users because it's kind of a nerdy concept. Like you know, we don't want to show like big old ID strings. People will be like, "What the heck is this thing?" Um, mm-hmm. So we kind of like we articulate it to users in a different way that's more friendly to normal people. Um, but it certainly has that integration and does the credential exchanges. Um, one word I should note about Ion. So it's it's built on top of Bitcoin. You know, there's tons of different DID implementations, um, but it's trustless and permissionless and open. Uh, an open network that anyone can use. It's it's a protocol, so it's akin more to something like Lightning than it is any trusted system. It's deterministic, so like there's no like validators, there's no cabal or set of people who you know it reaches out to to get permission from. It's it's a mathematical protocol, so you can totally run your own node. Uh, inside a node is Bitcoin and IPFS, they're kind of in, in the box, as it were, and there's some processing logic. But that's really all you need. You boot it up. You can have the entire network state on on your machine, and you can you can resolve any ID, find the keys for any ID you need to securely on your own without trusting anyone else. And it's not its own blockchain. There's no consensus mechanisms. So in the same way that like Lightning is a sort of a use of uh, the UTXO space with certain you know uh, opcodes and, and what have you. So too is Ion. It's, you know, sort of uses the underlying foundation of anchoring transactions in certain opcodes with some layer two protocol smarts to give you this thing. But there's no outside trust. So when people look at it and they say, oh, that's from Microsoft, it's like, man, this thing, we, we could not censor your ID if we wanted to. Like we could not remove an ID from Ion if we wanted to do so. so
0: right. Yeah. And for people that are familiar with using Bitcoin, would you manage your keys to these identifiers in a similar manner, right? So would you have potentially a, you know, a separate wallet to secure these keys that help you manage your identity in this way? Is that how yeah, it would So work?
1: absolutely. So wallets will probably be out there helping you uh, manage keys. It is very similar, right? These, these identifiers that you accrue a bunch of history to, if you, if you just think about it, you know, to give the analogy of Twitter again, if I back my, my um, account up with 2FA or something, right? Whatever that security mechanism that I'm foundationally um, grounding uh, that identifier to is essentially like the management capability. In Ion, you're grounding it to the possession of public and private keys. Right? Right. So if if you lose those keys, like if you lose your root keys to a given identifier, you can lose the identifier. You can't call Microsoft or any provider and say, "Hey, bail me out," right? Like it's actually kind of part of the system. If someone if someone can bail you out unless you've really given them the keys and made them a custodian. Like that's kind of a sign the system's centralized. So, right. it truly does have that loss condition. But there's there are some great things that wallets are doing to try and help you, you know, not do that. Just like Casa would do it for say, you know, your Bitcoin keys, like Wallets are going to do that for your DID keys,
0: right? Making it mm-hmm. less intimidating and more user friendly, right? That's correct. Um, and I guess the, the the kind of node and storage component, you know, as the, the, the example we were discussing with your Twitter history, say, is a little bit more complicated and probably a little bit further down the line. That's right? correct.
1: Yeah, we are yeah. working hard on very early version of the specifications for the personal data store aspect right. we call them Identity Hubs, wherein you know you can publish out public unencrypted data to it. In the case of a tweet, you just want everyone to see it. So they look up your DID, they say, give me your tweets, right? Or encrypted data. Maybe it's encrypted chat messages that are inbounded from other IDs. That's, you know, realistically, I think we're maybe a year out from having a really stable, solid sort of initial implementation of that. Um, But there's a lot of great companies in the space, like, you know, the textile folks, uh, you know, Fission, Ceramic others that are working on this. And they've, they've all got sort of, in my opinion, and this is not disparaging them. They're like the 80%, like they're all kind of 80% similar in the sense they're tackling the same problem. And what we need as a community is a specification and a standard that, that gets us, um, you know, one thing that we can all implement against to kind of be stable and not have these little silos.
0: Right. And, Mm -hmm before we go on is is it fair to characterize or kind of analogize did to kind of like an rss for privacy data like if you if you want to be so because you were mentioned with the tweet example right you could you could kind of say like this tweet goes out to everybody versus this tweet goes out to this list of either addresses or people is that Yeah, I mean,
1: so I think think for some forms of data that they kind of look like an RSS, right? You could have tweets in your hub and people have open access to the full history of them that you want to present. Um, So that kind of looks like a feed. Uh, Other things might not be feeds, right? You might have your encrypted medical records there and you don't show those to anyone. It's really just because you want your data always with you. Um, And those things aren't really a feed. I mean, unless you maybe gave a doctor access to, to part of it and then they could see you know, every time you do a new medical test, your general, you know, your general physician or whatever is able to see that, right? No matter where you go, they're able to check it out and look at your records and help you. Um, so in that way, it's, it's kind of like a feed, I guess people, when they get access to like encrypted data or permission data, they have a feed to
0: it. So similar. Yeah. How I get, well, I guess the, the, the question is why Bitcoin? Um, but the, the thing I was kind of specifically wondering is how did bitcoin's kind of solving the, the chronological oracle problem facilitate this sort of innovation or this sort of development
1: well yeah it's it's an excellent question so you you brought up the three words uh, that are you know at the basis of identity and PKI which is the chronological oracle problem which is uh, really if we had to distill it you know, right now with a lot of centralized hierarchy based PKI systems, you have an ID and well, you know, what cryptographic material proves that, you know, the site content or the owner is, is a certain person. Well, it's whatever the, co- you know, sort of cabal says the certificate right. is at any given time. And the reason they can't transfer them, um, in a way that's decentralized is there's no concept of time. Like, I don't know when I initially create an identifier and it like starts with key one. Right. And I want to do, and I, it, I basically update its key state and I like roll you know, phones off and all that stuff. That lineage has to be maintained or else when I look up the identifier, I can never understand like what was its true path to its current state, right? So it's this time problem, like the state change over time. I need that to be verifiable. So what Bitcoin did for the first time and solved basically a 40-year problem in identity was... How do you create identifiers where the lineage of the ID's backbone PKI is traceable in a way that you don't just trust some authority to house those state changes and say, here, this is correct. Mm-hmm. And that's what Ion uses Bitcoin for is actually a primitive lower than the monetary layer, which trips people out, right? Like they think, well, money. Money is actually a higher order manifestation in Bitcoin. People believe UTXOs have money and, and you know, the fractions of Bitcoin that you send virtually but that's actually a human manifestation of value on top of a system that fundamentally is about recording events. Um, and the way you record those events is, you know, there's there's monetary aspects to it, but it's not fundamentally monetary, monetary in nature. We anchor in Bitcoin for one simple reason. It is the best logical clock that only counts forward by block number that the world's ever had. And it's the only system and the strongest system that does that. So when we anchor Alice's first PKI state in block 1000, and then she rolls her new phone on with to a new, you know, new key in block two thousand. We know that one happened before the other, and we can trust that that was the lineage order of those things. So, right. so that's that's why Bitcoin.
0: Right. So basically, because Bitcoin's be- the, the best and most reliable clock. That's why. That's why Bitcoin for or timekeeper or you know, whatever, however you want to characterize it. Absolutely. Um, what you mentioned lightning before and Ion being, you know, a second layer solution. What are, you know, because there's interesting, uh, I guess identity related innovations happening, or there's different innovations and products emerging on lightning that take a different approach to how much identity you need to relinquish in order to engage with them. And this is getting people excited about, you know, being able to earn money, communicate, et cetera, et cetera, pseudonymously or anonymously. So, how do you see the, the the differences and or overlaps between, you know, let's say the identity considerations and possibilities and something like Lightning versus ION?
1: So, you know, one thing with Lightning that I'd kind of bring up is Lightning does require sort of active state maintenance and all, all of that sort of stuff. Um, whereas, uh, you know, if you used it for IDs, whereas ION does not. Like once you cast something, it is there and you don't have to have your node on sort of like doing any performing any of these active activities at all. Right? Um, so that's that's one one difference. Uh, another one is I've seen a lot of these, and I, I think these are great innovations, by the way. I'm not trying to say that they're bad. I think they're absolutely useful where they're useful. But like this idea of off, authentication over lightning where you have to pay to do everything, Some things are are great. You might want to pay a lightning invoice to, to be able to access like per API call things or something of that nature, but not everything requires money. Like one good example of this is like the social inbox use case where people are like, I don't want to get spammed. So, um, I'm going to charge adult uh, 50 cents or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the issue. I mean, you could have spammers, let's say I'm an old person, and I've got a lot of net worth, and I want to be, I'm going to be targeted by spammers who think I'm an easy mark. If we move to a world where your only, you know, um, blockage was like, hey, it's a lightning payment, let me just charge 50 cents. I mean, there's probably attackers out there who are more than willing to drop 100 bucks on trying to fool an old person, right? Right, right? And then the old person... Is sort of faces this dilemma. Well, do I want to charge thousand dollars every time someone connects me? Probably not, right? It, maybe money isn't the right sort of uh, hammer <laughs> to hit everything with. Maybe mm-hmm. identity itself is. So, what if that old person can say, "I have an ID system not commingling with money inextricably, and to gate access to me, I'm only going to accept a request that comes with a credential proving that the identity owner of who's making the request is of uh, has a you know a, is a board certified doctor right and they can prove it through credential or is a bank uh that i bank with and have my security box, deposit box with right like actually proves these things through credentialed attestations and you don't even need to charge at that point because you can set up sort of these permission barriers that aren't about money they're about proving trusted assertions and so i would say that like Lightning's awesome it's a tool that has a huge, broad set of use cases it addresses, but, but let's not treat it as like, you know, everything's a nail, right, mm-hmm. with, with its a monetary exchange capability.
0: How would, so I'm thinking about uh, Ion and, and basically, I get how it's meant to work. Mm-hmm. What if it doesn't work? What if, let's say, there's a dispute and or there's an attack, uh, you know, and what you just said about, you know, spamming just made me think of that. Like It all kind of hangs on the validity of the credentials that it propagates, I guess, right? So,
1: so again, I, I want to very clearly separate. Ion has has no identity data or credential data in it at all. It has no idea of that. It is Sorry, just yeah. the identifier layer. So right. if we're talking How about- How it
0: identifies then, I guess, is more appropriate. Yeah,
1: that, and that all happens above Ion, right? If you want to say, I want to look up the keys to prove that someone has the ID they claim to have, you can do that. That's what Ion is useful for. Or right. if I want to go get the routing endpoint to like you know a URI that has a server to talk to someone, that's what it's useful for. Now, if you want to talk about attacks on Ion or or like that, that's an interesting How it fails topic. or how it
0: gets attacked? Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. So so Ion, like I said, it's not a. There's no secondary consensus in Ion. There's, it's not like a separate blockchain or anything. It's a deterministic and uh, mathematical protocol. So it's like. It's an eventually, it's basically a huge, eventually strongly consistent database. So there are no real attacks. Like you can't confuse Ion. Like if if Alice, for instance, she created a DID and she said, well, I'm going to do an update to my DID to roll this key on, but then I'm going to create another false update to roll this other key on. And I'm going to call them both, you know, that number two, my update number two, right? 2A and 2B. If you cast them into Ion, they are going to deterministically fall into an order. The system the system carries Bitcoin's order to the second second layer, and so they will always fall one two right in Ion's like view. So it's it picks the first. It basically follows the earliest path. So you can't you can't trick it or confuse it like a confused deputy problem. It's it's purely mathematical. So it's going to it's going to use Bitcoin and its own lineage to align all the operations in history and say like, yeah, Alice isn't confusing me with 2A or 2B. 2B came first or 2A came first, right? In time. So it's again, a time problem. So the only real attacks on ION, and I mean, there are some, so let's let, let's talk about those, right? Are yeah. not like you can confound its thing or, you know, break its, its cryptography unless maybe, you know, you go into the quantum computing thing or wh- whatever people like to talk about there. It's more about, um, it, it's kind of reduced down to uh, monetary attacks. The, the the attacks on on Ion to deny Ion, it's a massively parallel system at the layer two, so you can't really attack it there. Um, you could attack it at the Bitcoin level, uh, which would requisitely require you attacking Bitcoin itself. So to attack Ion, um, I call it the by the bar attack. We we looked at a bunch of threat modeling with red team and like all these other um, you know teams internally, and we came to the conclusion that like the most viable attack, and it's not really even that viable, is You've just got to buy all Bitcoin's block space. Like you could deny Ion by by buying all the Bitcoin transactions, for instance, right? Like, hey, I want to prevent people from rolling keys, so I'm literally going to purchase every single block of Bitcoin's uh, you know transaction space for an amount of time, right? Could do it, but. It's going to be very costly, as we know, especially going over time. As as Bitcoin's market cap grows and the on-chain transaction volume grows, it's going to get more and more and more expensive to try and deny people that space. And the interesting thing about this is people say, well, how is ION going to keep paying for these transactions? Because it does need to anchor transactions, right? Yeah. One, one Bitcoin transaction that's in, encoded with the Ion you know, uh, opcode and, and, and data that marks it as, as being an Ion transaction um, can, can sort of host and branch out to 10,000 Ion DID operations. So it's essentially, one Bitcoin transaction equals 10,000 Ion operations. Now, turns out that not all identity is created equal. So think about like all of the other protocols that are just about proving publication, at a certain existing point, like open timestamps, right? Open Mm -hmm. timestamps is not like Ion. Ion's concerned with the sequence of time. Open timestamps is concerned with publication at point in time, right? So think about Ion as like, it's lacing events together over history, whereas like publication protocols are just saying like, I'm gonna fire something out and prove that a hash exists at this point, right? They're subtle difference, but big difference. Now, what you're proving at that point in anchoring, maybe you have 10,000 hashes you're anchoring of like cat pictures. Turns out it's not very valuable, right? But ION is anchoring the very foundations of people's identity. How much do you think Jeff Bezos would pay to like roll keys from phone A to phone B when he gets a new phone? Uh, You think he's willing to pay like $5? Probably, right? Um, So ION has a very different value model in the sense that the roots of identity, which comprises all the customers businesses could want to talk to and all that stuff. Think about taking 10,000 customers right? And, and the very vital proofs of their, uh, of their, their key ownership and saying, how much is, are 10,000 of those aggregated worth? My guess is that if you, if you do the math and Bitcoin transactions went up to $100 per transaction, that's like, you know, one cent, right? Is it worth one penny every time you get a new phone to kind of switch your, your key over? Our bet is, yeah, it's, it's probably worth it because that's like a high value thing. And you're right. already probably paying more for the new SIM card and they're just sticking it in your bill. It's probably like five cents than that one cent costs
0: over time. And is this something that you would determine similar to a Bitcoin transaction today? Like would you have any autonomy or control over that? And furthermore, how like how are transactions batched and 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 Executed and propagated and all that stuff.
1: Great, great question. So are you I think the first question, just to clarify, are you asking, like, you know, how people can set their fee thresholds and they're like, I'm gonna wait till fees are <laughs> yeah. a certain point and then do it. Um, yeah, certainly. And I'll talk about how that works, right? So anyone can anyone in the world can ground a batch of Ion transactions, uh, up from one to ten thousand, right? Um, if they can access Bitcoin and do a Bitcoin transaction. Again, there's no Microsoft in the middle or anything. If you can use Bitcoin. You inherently can access Ion's capacity, right? So
0: what so happens? Just sorry, sorry to interrupt yeah. for one sec. So who who's doing the batching? Is it Bitcoin miners? That, that no, no. That? So
1: so the batching is at the node level. So like let's let's take a you know a realistic scenario. We we run a node. Microsoft runs an Ion node, and we allow people to do these ops for free. You know if they use a wallet and stuff like that because we need to anchor them for them. Um, so what we do is the the keys live on their device, but they might sign an operation, right? And instead of running their own node, which means running Bitcoin or something like that, they might want to send it to someone else running a node who's going to anchor a transaction that includes their operation. Now, the cool thing to remember here is your keys always stay on your phone, right? So if I send my operation to like an aggregator like Microsoft, the worst they could possibly do is drop it on the ground, right? I'm not going to include it. They can't change it, it's signed with your keys, just like you can't change like, you know, Bitcoin transaction when you broadcast it, it's like there's a man in the middle condition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's imagine Alice, Bob, and all these people are sending their ops to Microsoft. Microsoft's taking them in its node and putting them all in a very compressed sort of data format and creates an IPFS uh, file, a set of files from it, and then anchors the roots of that into Bitcoin, right? In an op return. Um, And then it's picked up by all the other nodes. All the other nodes are essentially watching Bitcoin for these very specifically encoded transactions that are IPFS hashes. And they're very interested in only these transactions, right? So they validate certain things when they find one. They say, oh, did you pay enough fee? Uh, You know, is everything right with this? Is the signature correct? Yep. Okay, great. Cool. I'll go fetch those IPFS files and I'll replicate them. So it's not like this stupid IPFS system where it's like, oh, it's just, you know, we're going to cast the data on IPFS and hopefully everyone downloads it. All the nodes circulate the data and and replicate it. So it's a, you know, it's duplicated amongst them. Um, the reason why you'd want to use an aggregator like Microsoft or some other node is because you just don't want to pay the Bitcoin fee, right? right? And maybe they just don't care. Like for us, like doing the operations for Bitcoin, even at heights of, you know, peaks of transaction fees is, is nothing. We just don't care. It's such a rounding error that it's like, you'd have, whatever.
0: You'd have the ability to just like, if you want to uh, like establish a new, uh, what, what's the term that we've been using? Identifier. Ident- identifier. Yeah. Yeah. You could just do it one for one. One identifier. Yeah. Oh yeah. If you, if you
1: want to go like totally crypto, you know, like anarchist, you're like, Hey, look, I, I don't want to talk to these companies. I don't want anyone in the middle. I'm running my own node. I got a little bit of Bitcoin. I'm doing the sucker myself. You you know, you create an ID, you make your own op, you do a Bitcoin transaction, has has a one in front of the uh in front of the op data, so it denotes that there's one operation, and you're you're ready to rock
0: and you can do right. the
1: whole thing yourself. Yeah.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, man, this is <laughs> this is there's a lot to this, but what what's been the hardest part of determining like the architecture for all this? Like, where do you start when you know, and I'm sure this could be an extremely long story. So that's why I'm, I'm saying, like, what, what's the hard, what's the biggest obstacle to an architecture that's trying to do what you're doing, which is like so much verifying and confirming of such a disparate amount of data. You know, yeah. how do you? What's the hardest part of piecing well, all that together?
1: So, so again, I'm going to preface this with, of course, we're not actually like Ion is not concerned with validating or doing any sort of identity data or credentials or anything. But it is a lot of data, and the data is about key roles which implicitly means that like, you know, you've got to validate that state one, state two, state three, and they're all cryptographically linked. So there is some processing there. Now, great question. There's a ton of people who have attempted to build these systems. And what we looked at at first was, we're at a different scale, right? So you'll see implementations out there in the ecosystem that clearly do not scale. There's another DID method that is based on Bitcoin, there is another one that it's like a straight one to one. There's no aggregation capabilities, there's none of these these other things. So it like requires from here on out you would have to always do a Bitcoin transaction and it's all yours and it's like ooh, I don't know if that's going to last, right? Because, you know, costs are going to go up. So we said, this thing has to scale. It's got to be, it has to have aggregation capabilities. We also don't want to introduce intermediaries, custodians, or anything like that. Um, And so we kind of set down a list of like, what does the scale need to be? And for us, it needs to be hundreds of billions. This thing needs to be capable of hundreds of billions of entities within it and still scale to meet that, but also be feasible to run on consumer hardware. So we had all these bounds because if you can't run the nodes yourself, it's not really decentralized. We took that ethos from Bitcoin itself. We, we can't have this thing being, you know, taking a data center or else it's just not going to work. Um, so one of the, the things that we did that was really, really important as we tested things uh, initially was we wanted to reduce the boot up time processing. So one killer with state-based systems, and I'm not going to mention them on, on the call, other blockchains and such, is that when they boot up, they've got to process a bunch of very complex state transitions just to get to the global state. Mm-hmm. ION is, is what's known as an embarrassingly parallel system. So like, let's say I fire up an ION node and it starts reading from its initiating block, which is block 667,000. Um, and that's where it starts, right? Like the, the first ION transactions happen after that. Um, mm-hmm. It's going through... And it doesn't even care. It lets Bitcoin just do its validation up to that point. And then it gets real interested. And then it starts like looking for all the transactions that are, you know, encoded with this special thing. And it starts ripping through and trying to grab those files, right? It's just going off the network and trying to pull down files. It only needs to actually validate and not cryptographically the first file in this sort of chain of files, which is about 4% of the data to securely form the whole set. So what you don't have to do is if Alice has done 10 state transitions to one of her IDs, you don't have to go validate all those state transitions as you're booting up. That state transition stuff happens just in time. So like, let's imagine like I've done the root validation, and then I pull all the data down, and now I have it. And Alice, I'm getting a request to, to resolve Alice's ID, to find the d- the current state of her ID with keys and endpoints for the first time. Well, I have the data cache or have links to the exact IPFS blocks that are required. And I, if I'm a full node, I just have the data right? Those are a little bit bigger. If I'm a light node, I have all the backbone and I know the blocks I need. So I just in time request them and I compute them cryptographically and then I just deliver the value. So what we're not doing is taking a world of state changes and compiling them on the fly at boot. We're essentially in, a, in an incredibly parallel way going and getting what we need and then just doing things just in time.
0: Right. Yeah. How, With that in mind, how big would like storage for a node presumably have to be for, I don't know what kind of user we're talking about, yeah. but let's just say average.
1: Yeah, let, let's talk numbers. So um, yeah. so it, there's there's one configuration now, and we're going to build a second configuration. The only configuration we have right now, and it's fine because there's not a lot of you know IDs in the system, is the full node. And the full node would run about, let's say, what would it be? 20, 20 terabytes if you had 40 billion IDs in the system, it's going to be about 20 terabytes right? Um, and that's if you want instantaneous resolution of cached full state of everything on disk for you to be able to do whatever you need, right? Um, and that's just, you know, obviously, any company can run that even 20 terabytes at that full scale, where we have the entire earth using ion, right? Every yeah. man, woman, child using ion, uh, we're, we're 20 terabytes. And that's that's what it needs. That's the full state of data. The light nodes require about 4% of that, right? 4%. So they're going to keep the the backbone data, right, that that makes sure it's still trustless. And they might keep the batch data just for their own, a few megabytes really is what this boils down to, to persist their own IDs on the network, right? Because they want to help do that. Because they don't want to trust all the full nodes, even though the full nodes have the data and they're like, you know, it's replicating an IPFS and it's, it's, it's highly replicated. You can say, even if I'm the last ion node on the planet, Right? I'm going to keep the backbone data and my own little data batches, which might be ten, few tens of megabytes over time, alive and there, and no one could ever shut your IDs down. right? right. And that 4% uh, equates to about like maybe like 1.8 terabytes that you would keep to trustlessly resolve 50 billion other people or organizations all over the planet if you needed to at any given time without relying on any intermediaries.
0: Right. Yeah. What, what happens if you... Basically, if you lie, if you try to, you know, start off with a lie, or if you try to feed the system inaccurate data.
1: Okay, good question. So again, I do want to preface this with like, when you say feed a lie, we're not talking about like feeding it identity data or like human lies. Um, In the case of ION, it would be this thing of like malformed ops, uh, malformed Mm. batch files, um, you know transitions that don't have the correct um, commit reveals, right? Think like cryptographic stuff, you try to lie to it. Um, it's got a set of deterministic rules that all nodes compute all state data with that essentially they all come and converge in the exact same answer. So the, that set of rules includes certain checks, like here's the first thing you might lie with, right? And I'll get into an interesting protocol bit here because people, maybe this is, it's not the first time it's been used, but maybe people don't know you can do it. So Ion ba- Ion batches uh, up to a hundred operations don't require anything of what we call value locking or escrow to do. You can just create a Bitcoin transaction. You can do up to a hundred Ion ops in that transaction. And it doesn't require anything other than paying whatever the mining fees are, like you know normally on Bitcoin, right? If you go over a hundred, so if you're trying to aggregate and encumber essentially the rest of the network with a large amount, right, of IDs, might be a few a couple megabytes or something like that versus just a few IDs, you have to do this thing that we call value locking, which basically says in accordance with the size of batch that you want to access, um, you've got to lock Bitcoin in a relative time lock for thir- about 30 days of blocks that you cannot touch and you depriving yourself of those funds, which are exponentially greater than the amount you're tr- the amount of IDs you're trying to lock, um, essentially gives you the ability to, to anchor larger batches. And so what I would equate this to in like human terms is like, you know how like in the NFL, you you don't just get to buy tickets sometimes, you got to buy a seat license. So the ticket may be like hundred bucks, but the seat license is like $50,000. Not everyone's got $50,000 in cash, right? So to even attack on at the jump, you might have to drop for every transaction that you wanna do 100,000 in every block. You might have to say, I'm gonna lock up 100 grand equivalent in today's USD, for instance. And now I get the, the license to be able to anchor transactions. So the first thing that we check for in in the protocol is when an ID is anchored, if they claim to have like 9,000 operations in a batch or they and they do, it, they better have, have a relative lock, a Bitcoin lock that's paired with the transaction of the amount that is specified by the protocol for that number of operations they're grounding. If someone lies, we can instantly tell. We can look at the time lock, tra- time lock transaction. We can look at the number of Bitcoins. We can compute what it should be because it's known to all the nodes and say, you didn't pay enough, dropped, right? We just dropped your batch. Like no node on the network is gonna recognize it because they're all aware of how much in that given block you needed to lock up, right? To be able to access that capacity. And so that's the first check. So let's say you get past it, 9,000 transactions, you locked it up, you're good, on to the next thing. When well, you pull down these files and the files have to have a certain set of data they have to be in a model. If the model's malformed or any part of the data is wrong, you tried to like stick in weird values, dropped, right? The, it's, it, all the nodes just dropped the batches. Um, then the next layer down is, let's say you put an operation in that's invalid. It's from a past state, it's assigned the wrong key, whatever. When you go to resolve a given operation set for Alice, if it runs into a state change that says, Oh yeah, this is my third state, but it's signed with the wrong key, doesn't have the right lineage, it's dropped. So it, it has all these protections built into it to do its thing so that you can't you can't fool it. There's there's no way to really kind of lie to it,
0: basically. Mm-hmm. The you know, as you're explaining that, I'm thinking that so let's say today you go through immigration or some Place where you need Mm. your passport. Let's say immigration. I'm not not. You can tell me if this works out or not. But you you know, you have to give your passport and all that jazz. What this system ostensibly would would foster in the future is, as we've been discussing, being able to selectively reveal data. Right to be Mm -hmm. able to determine, like to only reveal the data which the uh, person you're interacting with requires in order to you know. to satisfy their demands for the service they're providing or whatever the situation is. Correct. But, you know, right. And right now things are so rudimentary in this regard as you know, so much data is, is so much excess data is given to almost all service providers. Uh, just because like, there's, I guess, an anxiety almost about like not having enough and not having (laughs) the proper, you know validations for for stuff that you just want everything so you can you know you yeah. can you can a- authenticate that way and then of course you create massive data honeypots and you know there's leaked yeah. data and then of course those companies can sell or otherwise use your data for something other than the the service that you were engaging them for in the first place and it's a whole big mess right but in order to get those institutions and i'm thinking i guess more in the domain of mo- monopolistic control of identity stuff so passports is probably a good one because basically you know long-winded here but what i'm saying is is like if if gmail i could i could choose to use gmail or not and so if they didn't want to trust a new trust identity architecture or system like this then i could just say fine you're not getting my business and i'll, I'll use another service with something hmm. like you know passport immigration government entities how, I mean, they are, if they are ever a hope to use some, a system like this as opposed to the one that's currently in use where it's just a massive you know, data capture, there would have to be a tremendous amount of trust in a system like this to function properly, right? And so do you ever see, if, do you see that happening in the future?
1: Yeah, let, let's talk about it. Let's talk about how we get to scale. What's the path to, to global adoption, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so a couple things. A, the trust would need to be there in the underlying did method of ion. Um, you know, I have a whole lot of trust that Bitcoin will continue to mint blocks uh, from here on out. Got a whole lot of trust in that, right? Um, mm-hmm. Some people might not, but you know, every single day that goes by, uh, hundreds more blocks get mined, and you know, it proves them wrong. So um, that's that's kind of what I would say about that. Over time, you know, twenty years, thirty years, you ask people online. How long does it need to go? You know, no, a lot of, a lot of the haters that can't give you answers. Well, you know, if it collapses in 13.5 years, then, then I will stop hating. Right. It's just like, (laughs) you're like, man, you know, I I can catch you every time. I know you're bullshitting. So, so I think that sort of will resolve itself, uh, in due course. But if we talk about actual business rollouts, right. Think about there's certain, uh, there's certain ironies to authoritarian governments where they sort of help you in certain ways without them, you know, maybe they're trying, maybe your interests are aligned in some odd sense, your odd bedfellows. I would say some of the laws they've created around privacy in the EU makes an odd bedfellow. You're like, huh. So you created a law that says that they have to do limited disclosure, right? You can't just yellow a bunch of data at a service provider, or if a service provider can take less, they have to, right? So the thing is, some laws have been created, but there's been no tools to be able to do it. So what we do as Microsoft is we're going to those institutions saying, look, you made a you made a good law in this case. In this case it was kind of good for people that you mandate that they don't just collect and, you know, Hoover up everyone's data. So, how do we do it? Well, here's a system whereby, you know, you could say submit your bank history, but you only want to submit like this line item, right? And we're going to give you the tools to do it in a way that respects privacy for people and makes your laws actually feasible. So that you know, it's not just something on paper that you know can't really be done in the real world, and so Microsoft's an institution that you know people don't know this, but well over ninety percent of the, the Fortune ten thousand run on our backbone centralized identity system, Azure Active Directory. So. Many of these institutions are our customers already uh, in terms of identity systems. So if we go to them and say, hey, look, we're just going to up level your privacy promises. We're going to get rid of some of those toxic data exchanges that you have that are now becoming liabilities on your balance sheet. We're going to replace it with a system that allows you to be able to get the business data you might need, but not have these liabilities and these potentially harmful aspects of the exchanges that you do in today's world and we're going to do that in a way that integrates into the tools and systems you already pay for and use today. And I think that that's the key. If we told everyone that they have to lift and shift their entire business and say forget about all that other infrastructure and it's completely new and you know that would take 25 years, right? But if we can say, hey look, we we extended OpenID Connect with DIDs so that it's not just speaking social auth, it's speaking DID auth. We extended uh, JWT with JSON Web proofs, so you can do zero knowledge proofs, not just these open public tokens, right? Like, we're, we're we're giving them the tools through the standards and conduits they already use, so that we can boot the system up more easily and it's more palatable to these institutions. And, we're, and that's kind right. of one of Microsoft's ways it can help.
0: Yeah. Right. And so, from the point of view of Microsoft, as well as any other that might exist. Mm -hmm. What are the economic incentives to rolling, developing and rolling out such a system, such a solution?
1: Well, you know, I think it's so ironic, right, in in the IAM space, identity and access management, that's what they call it in these, you know, in these corporations. Um, You know, lots of big corporations have them. There's the Auth0s, the Octas, the Microsoft, the Ping, you know, ForgeRock, all these IAM sort of specific companies. And, you know, the funniest thing about identity and access management as a vertical is, we hardly actually deal with the identity portion of that. <laughs> to date, it's mostly just been access management to accounts. Identity is the stuff that happens between people that's actually their lives. And so if you think about Microsoft and what they provide, we, have, we make a lot of money working on access to centralized systems. But we've never been able to even really offer too many products that have to do with actual identity interactions and the tools that would aid businesses and customers to do those interactions. So for us, going out and digitizing a lot of the analog processes in the world today, which are literally paper still in many circumstances, or silo locked, like it's one like local government has their stuff records in a certain way, and they have a hard time talking to others, that sort of thing. Um, that's a massive billions and billions of dollar opportunity right? That we see as like sort of going from paper letters to email, right? So if we can be the paper letters to email tool enabler, like we're going to give you the shovels, right? Make it it easier to send those emails. Um, We think that's that's worth billions. Absolutely.
0: Right. And is there an economic incentive... Outside of Microsoft, like, you know, Bitcoin as an example, right? B- there's an incentive to work on it, to develop on it, et cetera, because the more robust, the more secure, the more adopted the system is, the more money flows into it, the more people hold it, the more your coins are worth. Right. So is, is there is there any sort of economic incentives that play outside of, you know, with, outside of Microsoft in this in this case?
1: Well, so I think one of the one of the core economic incentives is is once you, the the DID PKI layer ion itself the very rudimentary layer reaches escape velocity, um, the incentive to run those nodes is that ev- the DIDs that they contain essentially represent the way you would connect with your customer. So if you said to Allstate, let's take some insurance company or whatever, uh, hey, you know what? Now that this ID system is proliferated and we've delivered this to billions of users because, you know, we have that scale and, you know, we can do that. Um, you know, you're going to have to run this little node that runs in a Raspberry Pi, by the way, might maybe has a slightly larger hard drive and d- really good SSD, but processing wise can run on a Raspberry Pi 4, right? Um, and it's going to cost you, you know, a thousand bucks and maybe like one engineer has to kind of look at it every now and then. And that's how you're going to authenticate Um, a billion people who could potentially be your customers, any given moment show up in your website to exchange credentials and authenticate their IDs. You know what that person's going to say? Wow, that is the cheapest cost of business I have ever seen. Of course, I'll run a node, right? To them, I've had these conversations with companies, providers, they say, you know, because they're used to these centralized systems. I say, how much does the license cost? And I say, oh, well, it's Apache two, so it's going to be free. And they say, wow, well, what's the resource consumption, right? And I'm like, well, it's, it runs on a Raspberry Pi 4. And they say, well, there's got to be, ooh, does it have a lot of bandwidth? And I say, well, not really. Uh, you can you can pretty much run it on a Comcast connection. And then they get down to saying, so wait, you're telling me the base infrastructure is like, I just stand this stuff up, use your services, and then to run a node, a couple couple grand?" And they laugh at me, right? Same thing happened uh, internally. We talked about like Bitcoin transactions. We talked about expense, right? They say, well, how much is it going to cost to do these Bitcoin transactions? And I say, well, you know, it, it could cost like a hundred thousand dollars a year. And they say, "Whoa, hundred thousand dollars, wait, not a hundred thousand dollars a year. I remember saying a hundred thousand dollars. And the person turned to me and said, oh, wait, a day? Because <laughs> in their minds, they have these secure token servers for like JWTs and they burn tens, $10 million a month, right? On this stuff. So they turned to me and like, did you say a hundred thousand dollars a year? To anchor Bitcoin transactions, they're just like literal, literally laughing at me at how cheap these things are. So when we talk about the economic scale and importance of identity, how much identity is worth, there is a natural incentive for people to authenticate their customers and the data of their customers and for backbone providers to run these nodes because it helps enable their provision of tooling.
0: Yeah. And yeah. kind of related to that, in Bitcoin, there are so many people that are ideologically aligned with what Bitcoin represents, that they voluntarily work on it. Do you mm-hmm. foresee something happening or something similar happening here because of potentially the way that uh, how people's ideologies around privacy and identity?
1: Yeah. So I, I think that the, the ion nodes themselves are lightweight enough next to Bitcoin that when we have these sort of um, these uh, kind of spray type protocols where you'll be able to say, I want to... Like, like here's a way you can help the network with Ion, right? Let's say you're running a light node. So you want to run around really small hardware. You don't want to have tens of terabytes, you know, at world scale, um, but you just have like one terabyte. And, I'm, you know, people are saying like 20 terabytes. Again, that's if all of humanity is on Ion. We're a ways away from that. Um, but let's say you wanted to run just a light node. And so you're running your own IDs, which is a few megabytes. And then the core backbone data, you might say, I'm going to make available on this hard drive, another gigabyte, right? To go help replicate other people's IDs. And that's not that bad, right? A gigabyte of storage or something. What it's going to do is randomly select over the corpus, right? That it that it knows exists and say, oh, yeah. I'm going to go replicate these blocks, right? And so that's one way that people can altruistically do it. That's a very low reach that might be like, you, you might spend pennies a month or something to help people. The other way um, that could naturally work is when we do have the data stores that actually contain the data um, they'll certainly be on your phone, right? The data will be on your phone, but if you have applications that are accessing the data, you might, you know, kind of not want every request to just come to your phone. You might want that same encrypted data replicated somewhere else. So there could be, you know, individuals who run maybe for lightning node payments. Um, Hey, I'll replicate your data, right. In a very, you know, in a way that we're not obviously tracking all the inbounds of the objects and stuff, even though they're encrypted and you just pay me over lightning like, you know, uh, an invoice or something. And so they can stand that capability up and it doesn't need to be that you run your outbound high volume node at Microsoft. You can run it through someone who has a decent server at their house, right? right. So you get this community clustering of encrypted data replication. And I think that that's, that's something that Lightning can, can help.
0: Right. And on, on the development itself like is is ion open source like it, oh
1: absolutely 100 percent. from the very right. beginning we didn't even develop it in microsoft we developed it in the decentralized identity foundation which is an open source patent-free organization that was created to ensure that all the developments uh, remain fully open source under apache 2 have no encumbered ipr and um, patents or anything like that it runs under the same ipr regime as w3c which does the standards for the for the web browsers um, So you should feel confident that when you look at the Ion Node code, like you see everything. There is no different compilation. You can run it yourself. You can compile it yourself. It's all. It's all for you guys.
0: And so, open source developers could contribute to it as well, right? Absolutely, definitely. Yeah. it's just on
1: GitHub under Decentralized Dash Identity the org. Yeah.
0: What do you, you know, in in society today, you know, moving? We've been talking a lot about kind of the technical components of this, um, which I think are important because I think it's probably fairly murky for a lot of people. And hopefully we we shed a bit of light on that. But, mm-hmm. you know, we live in a society today that seems to be almost, in, and this may be transient. We'll, well, you know, there's a lot going on in the world right now. We'll have to wait and see how things pan out. But a lot mm-hmm. of people's attitudes seem to be, I'm not doing anything wrong. Why do I care who has my data? You know, I'm mm-hmm. not a criminal. Why do I care? And furthermore, there seems to be a momentum towards more collectivist sort of thinking where which makes me wonder will people be resistant to even the idea of siloing and controlling your own data and be selective about the identities your the identity the elements of your identity that you're uh, expressing to the world you know I, I there almost seems to be kind of a zeitgeist of like yeah everything open know everything about everyone that's the only way we're going to you know, be safe or, or something like that. I mean, how do you square what this represents with the cultural attitude towards privacy and identity right now? So,
1: I, you know, I think some of the big tech companies have done and governments have done such a great job at advertising why people shouldn't do that, that I don't actually think we'll have a net problem with it. Um, I do agree that you know you always see those things online. Some some dude pops off and says, "Well, you know, if you don't have anything to hide, it's like, all right, bro, let me see every picture you've ever taken with your digital camera right now." <laughs> of course you do. Of course you do. And I'm not saying they're hiding like bad things, but they could just be like, you know, you got drunk and you took some some uh, risque pictures. You know, I don't right. know. Um, Texting with
0: the ex girlfriend late at night. Yeah, you
1: know? yeah I mean, it's <laughs> so, it's something. Everyone's got something they don't want to see. So when when you needle someone, uh, unless they're living on an Amish commune, it uh, probably got something. That they, that they don't want you to see digitally. So right. I think at its root, people understand that they they need this privacy layer. I think that they have competing... There's a lot of cognitive dissonance, like you're saying. Like someone could be very collectivist and say, no, should give it all, all away. Or, you know, I should be part of whatever they tell me that I that I should do, I'll do. But there's always going to be this pull in their, their personal life to say, "Ah, no, I don't really, I want some control. And so... I think even having one shred of control that they want is enough. It's enough to start pulling on that thread, right? To say, well, how about, there's probably 1% of your data you do want private, 1% of the control you do want to have. Well, why don't you have a DID just for that, right? So even the staunchest uh, proponents of collectivism and sort of like, you know, have someone else dictate my life, they've always, got, they've always got something. So I think we have an in with those people, but I think the mainstream is disenchanted with, with many of the large tech companies is disenchanted with the way uh, that certain, you know, governments snoop on their stuff. And they're disenchanted enough that they're willing to do something about it as long as someone provides them the tools in a friendly way that doesn't mm. require them to be like, you know, a PGP splunker to be able to get yeah. this stuff done.
0: Yeah. And what, I guess, to characterize the opposite of that, what would your, you know, your commentary or how do you see the people that Uh, To the point about the way governments and and big corps have treated data and identity over the the last decade, have gone have gone the opposite end of the spectrum, and they're in the position now where they're saying, "No, I'm going to have a server at my house, and I'm going to have you know isolated, encrypted apps for communications, Mm -hmm. transactions, social media. I'm basically going to be as anonymous as as possible. And yes, I realize I'll give up convenience, I'll give up uh, you know different services and utility functions, but." You know, we've we've gone so far in the opposite direction that I'm I'm shutting down everything and or I'm taking control of everything and encrypting everything that I can and everything that I cannot. I'm not participating in. You know how what, how would you relate what Ion provides to that type of a user?
1: Well, I, I think it gives them the full spectrum of the ability to do exactly that. Right. So you you have the ability with the combination of DIDs plus the the you know the emerging personal data store. Uh, capabilities to have a set of standards that are backed by not only strong cryptography, but maybe the strongest PKI system we've ever seen, um, backed by encryption that is standardized that you you can interoperate with others. We're giving them the tools to be as absolutely private as they want. And I think we're going to be making it easy enough over time that it won't have to be someone that invests in and says, you know, I want to ditch my identity and I want to hide in the woods and I want to, it'll be normal. People will be able to boot up these experiences and they'll get relatively the same experience and not have to deal with a lot of it. And I think the one point I would make is that I think businesses will come along for the ride. I mean, you see what, what Jack wants to do with blue sky. You know, I, I don't know, but I would guess that there's probably some business reasons he wants to do that. Like, you know, as, Wilkie and movements like pick up steam and like everyone has a problem with something everyone else is doing, right? Like, I mean, you, you see it all over the place. Two people you put in a room, you're like, oh, they're exactly the same. They'll find like something to be offended about t- together um, <laughs> <laughs> against each other. That sort of is driving this thing where platform providers, especially of social media, uh, they're in a position where they have to like censor literally every tweet. Like someone's gonna be offended right. by every tweet. And I, I I wonder if if Jack and others want to step out of that. They say look, we want to provide Twitter, people are going to keep using the Twitter app with this decentralized backbone or not. And so we'll keep making basically the same money. But we can step out of the role of like literally policing the world's speech and everything and let you do that. So when you hit block someone, you block them, man, that's you still get that ability It's decentralized, you never have to hear from those persons, that person's tweets ever again. And you don't have to go ask Jack to deperson them or whatever, you just don't pay attention. And so that whole, that like sprinkle of just mind your own business is kind, of, is kind of intertwined throughout this stack of tech. And I think it's going to empower people to mind their own business in, in radically good ways.
0: In Bitcoin, we like to speculate and get it excited about, uh, you know, what a Bitcoin future looks like, right? Like when you fix the money, what does the world look like? And I'd love to, you know, you've obviously spent a lot of time considering these things. and I presume your motivations for being involved at all would, you know, uh, have the reason those motivations came from thinking about what a future where where privacy and identity is, for lack of a better term, managed better. Uh, So what do you think a world where the type of control over privacy and identity that we've been discussing that and that presumably ION helps facilitate what are the things that change about the world? Like the big things, you know, like how do, how do things materially improve in your mind? What are the things that really crystallize for you when you're thinking about it?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I'll be, I'll be upfront. I'm a libertarian. Um, you know, I, I, from the, from the get go, I, you know, I, I saw Bitcoin, <laughs> I fr- saw Bitcoin in 2011 and, um, I certainly wish I bought more, but I, 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 I did understand, you know, where it was going and, and the foundations of it. And, uh, and I, I want a freer world and you can't just, I don't think the money fixes absolutely everything. I'll say that I think fix the money and you fix a really good portion of the world. I think identity and communications and encrypted, um, applications and services fix probably the re- most of the rest of at least the digital world. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need both. And so when I looked at this, I said, you know, what are the tools that are going to be needed to do encrypted chat, but as a standard, not pick an app, right? I don't want to do that. I want not have a standard. Um, What about apps where I don't put my data in the hands of people who are going to profile me and use it for things I don't want, right? That's a violation of my rights, um, in my opinion. There's a set of digital human rights, and I'm trying to execute against those. Um, So everything we do enables value exchange and and making money, but it also helps people back up their digital human rights, of which value transfers one and all these other communication interaction related ones are another. Um, So right off the bat, when I started on this at Mozilla and other things, that was the goal for me personally. And I'm not speaking on behalf of Microsoft. I don't think Microsoft's probably going to, you know, you're not going to see any press release. By the way, you know, digital human rights and mobile, blah, blah, blah. like, you know, they're aligned because there's a lot of business opportunity with it. It just so happens it's good for people. So w- when you get those marriages and it's, it's, it's few and far between sometimes these big companies, it's a really good thing.
0: Right. You know, it, it kind of occurs to me that when when all of your data has, has just, it's been scooped up and traded and sold and everyone has a copy and, and every moment you spend on these apps like Twitter and YouTube and Instagram, it's just collecting data about you, right? And it's, you know, putting mm-hmm. it through presumably extremely sophisticated processing to try to spit out the best possible insights for their advertisers, basically, mm-hmm. and, and probably some other stuff that we're we're, we're not even aware of. Yeah. But, you know, it occurs to me that what they basically get is, a, is an imprint of you, like a, they, they, they character profile you basically, and then based on the advertisers they work with, they reinforce or they mirror back to you the aspect of yourself that the advertiser wants you to be because yeah. they're trying to appeal to that aspect, right? Mm-hmm. And in the context of an increasingly, living in an increasingly digital environment, where we're getting so much input and feedback on a daily basis, it really is tantamount to having other people have way, like uh, an extremely undue influence on the feedback that you get to construct Mm -hmm. the identity, your identity of yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, because that's how we, that's largely how we form our perception is through our feedback that we get from the world in which we interact. And knowing that there's like this this sneaky element of other people determining the aspects of us that that they want to appeal to but as a result that we may get feedback to express more you know and this is kind of the the one of the potentially critiques of like a consumerist culture is like the ads be, like become the people, right? The ads yeah. inform the people. And that's why if you look at a picture from the 80s and a picture from the 60s and a picture from today, well, what do you know? People are wearing different clothing and have different hair and all that kind of stuff because that informs you so much. And I like to think that in a, in a future where we control what data uh, and identifying information we send out into the world and probably also we'll be able to filter what ads and other feedback we get from the world I like to think we're going to have more, uh, we're going to be more conscious of the people we are in such a world like that, and therefore have more control over who we are.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, I, th- I think there's a lot to unpack there, but maybe the two big sides of that to think about are: I don't think you'll ever truly get away from, hey, I exchange data with this party, and, you know, now they know something about me, and they're going to send me ads that are based on some profile they construct, right? Like if you sure, share sure. data, um, and you give them a conduit. They're probably going to spit something back at you that tries to like, you know, manipulate you. Is sometimes a strong word, but like they're going to try and get you to buy something. This whole point of ads, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that's that's going to continue because that's just human nature, right? They want to sell their products. It's been going on since before the internet. Um, but the other piece is interesting is that yeah, like only sharing pieces of yourself and not leaving such an exhaust is definitely a benefit, right? Mm-hmm. Right now, their profiles are eerie. They're strange. It's like you you know you type one. Or two words, and now they like you know compare that to all this other stuff that you you left this huge exhaust trail, and they're triangulating with insane precision to give you scary ads that are like, wow, we somehow know this about you. So I think reducing your digital exhaust to the very minimum kind of keeps you in more of a safe place where you're not going to like be attacked with ads that are like thinking you, you know your mind's being read. And the other thing is the flip side of that, where there's a convenience here, and I'll give you some examples, right? Uh, a convenience about directly disclosing exactly what you want people to know. So right now with like travel, right? When you set out on a trip, you've got uh, reservations for your plane flight. You've got bookings for your you know hotels. You've got um, things you want the room set. You want certain preferences about every everything in your experience. You've got reservations at restaurants, all this stuff disparately strewn across a million different apps that have all their own exhaust trail. Well, what happens when your reservations for your plane are credentials because that's what they really are. Credentials to say, I get to get on this plane, right? What about when they're in their, their standard format, same as your hotel reservation, standard format credential. I have a ticket to, you know, be in this hotel room. Um, same thing with reservations for a restaurant, you know, and you keep them all in your digital wallet in your personal data store. And you might give access to a certain app that says, Hey, I'll do trip like things for you. Instead of asking for, for, you know, account access to all of these services, and then further leaking your data across them. What if you were able to say, I want an app that just visualizes the trip experience, and the data is in my personal data store. So I give it permission just to those things. And now it has this cohesive view that's, that isn't so disjoint. That's very, very smooth. That leverages exactly what I want it to see and nothing more, and gives me the value that I want. And so, you know, we, we've been talking with brands from all these different verticals, the idea like, Hey, I want to get to know a user. They're my customer. I want to like track one or two preferences that may change over time. And they have the ability to do that. So it's like, they're specifically delivering you value in a way that doesn't expose you to all of that other negative
0: downside. Does that kind yeah. of make sense? makes total sense. I, you know, I feel like it's a ways off, but it's certainly <laughs> aspirational. You know, that yeah, would be yeah. great. Um, You know, you mentioned you're a libertarian. How do you feel? And we kind of touched on this with the passport stuff, but I think, you know, just to drill down a bit more, some people believe that we're kind of heading, we're headlong into an era, heading headlong into an era where the panopticon wants to see everything, track Mm -hmm. everything, know everything. How do you think uh, solutions, systems, protocols like this will jive with what seems to be, uh, you know, the opposite uh, objective from the point of view of, let's just say governments around the world?
1: Um, so I don't know that all governments are created equal. I mean, I think that they're, they're all in desperate need of, you know, of something. <laughs> I'll say, um, I don't want to get to, uh, you know, I'm still on the clock here. I don't know. Man. Um, <laughs> let me try and step out of it, step out of my, uh, my work chair here. Yeah. So some of the things I'll tell you, obviously a personal personal beliefs, right? My personal sure, beliefs sure. is that, yeah, there's governments are wide, wildly overstepping in a lot of areas of human life. Um, we have to give people the tools to be able to maintain a level of privacy and security that they desire. And so that's what these tools are. I would hope that they wouldn't fight it. I know some will, right? Some, some do actually create laws that are friendly to that. There's some like EU countries that have done that, that have like strong data privacy laws that actually marry up rather closely this sort of stuff. Um, so I will say that I think we will get a fight. I mean, you can see it with the encryption debates and all that stuff. Like people are going to kick and scream. They're going to do the same thing that they're doing with this Apple, uh, you know, you know, uh, content scanning thing. And I do have fear. Um, I have fear that, that they'll, you know, attack the good solutions, that they won't be responsive to it, that they won't be responsive to the people's needs. Um, but I also have fear, like, If we weren't doing this, if we weren't, and I I told a buddy who was the guy who got me into Bitcoin years and years ago at Mozilla, I said, man, we, you know, Bitcoin seems like it's going to solve one of these big problems, but the other one's identity and apps and and encryption and all this stuff for for the exchanges we have in identity. And gosh, if we don't do it, man, who's going to do it? Who's going to create a system of identity? And it's probably going to be worse. Do we Mm -hmm. want to be on the field playing that game? Or do we want to let someone else take our spot? Because the only way that I can personally guarantee that, that the outcome is at least a little better is if I'm suiting up every day, right? And I'm taking the mound and I'm throwing the pitches and and, you know, and sometimes I may get beaned or you know, I'm, you know, people are going to tee off on of me. But if I'm not there, I'm not showing up, I'm not suiting up, I'm not playing the game, then someone else gets to define that. And it won't be a, a solution that works as hard for people, that preserves people's rights as well. And I don't want that to be the case. So yeah. when I had that discussion with them, he said, yeah, yeah, you know, that's that's true. Like it, it, the world's not going to stand still. So we can manifest our own destiny here to a certain extent, but it's going to require the community. Just like you saw the outcry with the, you know, the Bitcoin crypto, you know, law stuff in the, the uh, infrastructure bill. There's a big voice out there. We need to be as concerned about um, digital identity and app data exchanges and credentials and all that stuff as we are about money. Because mm-hmm. if we're not, what they don't catch us on on money, they're going to catch us on the back end with with identity data, which is just as powerful.
0: Right. And do you not think that those solutions can be built in a manner that can't be stopped, and the market will simply adopt the solution, and nobody can do anything about it? I, I mean, I not think, in, anything because governments can do a lot, but you know what I'm saying? Like, do you think I, I the? I think it's harder. It's harder with identity than it is, honestly, harder, harder with identity than it is
1: money because sure, sure. they already have these ingrained systems that. Sp- that spawn out even more so than money. Like there's a lot of businesses, yeah, yeah, they all take money and accept money, but it's not their rails of their business. Like when, you know, your roofer comes, he's not like every second, like trying to like, you know, do monetary transactions, but they're doing a lot of identity transactions. So once you get these large structures ingrained, it's really hard to turn that ship super hard. And it's not about just like flipping enough human labor value into the system. You actually have to convince them to change longstanding business processes in addition to just having a better solution. So, yeah, I I think that it's gonna be it's gonna be tough, but when you have a company like Microsoft that is in this case anyway standing up for the user, is being privacy aligned, is working towards the same goals, yes, for a business reason, um, who has such large reach, I think we're in a good spot. I think we're we're in a better spot than any time before the last five years uh, of right. getting it done, and it's not guaranteed. So I think if I had to gauge the percentages, we're still below fifty percent. Absolutely no guarantee. probable loss, but I want to push that number up every day, right? That's my goal. Mm -hmm. When I wake up every day, I want to get that number up as far as I can to guarantee a win for us and everyone else. And, Mm -hmm. um, and that's just the best I can do, you know?
0: Totally. Totally. Very well said. Um, well, man, I know we could talk about this stuff for a long time because pretty much everything we touched on is its own rabbit hole. But I'd, I'd be more h- curious to hear from you if we missed anything that you think is, you know, kind of critically important to understand about the work that you guys have been doing or what's going on. Like, is there something I didn't ask about at all um, that we should cover?
1: I, you know, I, I think one thing to be mindful of is that, like I said, the, the community is going to be what realizes this. Uh, to an extent, you know, companies like Microsoft, companies with a business interest that happen to be aligned, are going to be a huge help. But what? Sadly, I don't see as much fervor for getting into decentralized, identity, decentralized apps and communication as I do money in our community of highly educated, highly motivated, uh, freedom-seeking people, and that would be. My overarching ask is that if anyone watches this segment and they hear about some of the things that this can do and the efforts going on, you have to put in the sweat equity because we need more people. We need people working on these technologies. We need contributors. We need people working on use cases and ideation. Like The whole space needs to have the same level of rigor and attention paid to it that we pay to Bitcoin, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. I think to that effect, you know, education and explanation of what you guys are doing. And I hope this conversation, you know, serves to help that, though. I know it's like complicated and complex stuff will be helpful because I think the the result of being in the environment which we are in the world today, or at least a perceived environment, is a type of radical response against, you know, you know, sharing data whatsoever, you know? So I think a lot of people in the Bitcoin space are like, you, you know, the middle, the the middle ground, the compromise, which, which, and and I use that term carefully because I don't necessarily mean giving away anything that you don't want to give away. But I think because the solutions aren't one developed two, you know, people aren't familiar with them and they're not super clear in people's minds, they're just saying, okay, the state has too much information about me. <laughs> they're they're watching me too much. They're invading my privacy. I'm going full dark mode. Right? I'm mm-hmm. going like I am. I am shutting down any leakage as I can. And and most you know I, I don't think most Bitcoiners are actually or people in the community are actually there because they, I think there's a high degree of acceptance about the data that's been leaked already, and maybe mm-hmm. that's that's uh, that means there's not that much incentive to do much about it. But I think educating about what you know what this looks like, like what does a world with this type of management of privacy and identity, what does that look like versus, you know, the full shutdown versus the full, I don't care. It's all out in the open. I'm not a criminal sort. Like those are three distinct approaches. And I think, you know, the more information and education around them, particularly the the solution that you're working on, uh, the better, you know, for uptake and for, for working on it and contributing to it and supporting it, et cetera.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that that's actually an excellent point. And you know, how I'd, how I'd put that into action is I would say right now, we've got a decent amount of people working on the lowest level bits, but we could always use more, but we have very few people working on making it palatable and understandable for anyone that isn't, you know, these, you know, Martian coder people, right? Like like I probably said (laughs) a bunch of stupid words that people like that's that, is nonsense. Like you just talk right, nonsense, right. right? So making it digestible, having people come in, write FAQs, having people do these podcasts. I mean, I I'm, I thank you for just having me on, so that if there are snippets here and there that can um, relate to people that aren't necessarily uber technical, that they can get a hold of that. But we need more of that above the tech help. So come in, you know, go into the repo, say, hey, what do you need? Do we need a user guide? Do we need all stuff? You know, make yourself available, right? Suit up dress up, dress out for the team and get on the
0: field, you know, because that's the only way we're going to win. hundred <laughs> percent. Um, is there somewhere to that, you know, to that end, is there somewhere you want to direct people either for, to follow your stuff personally or to follow the project or anything like that?
1: Yeah. So we do a lot of work, uh, in the decentralized identity foundation. Uh, the URL is identity dot foundation. Uh, again, everything open source, uh, royalty patent-free, so so jump jump in there. There's a lot of standards being done, a lot of specifications and reference implementations. Um, great wealth of knowledge there. Um, advocate for the DID specification, which is going through W3C ratification right now. We need pressure on W3C member companies, which includes the largest internet companies. You know, so some very large retailers, like there's a l- who's who there, banks and everything, that they should vote in the affirmative to ratify the specification because without it, we don't have a standards basis uh, for these decentralized identity systems. So um, those are two things that you can do right now Um, in terms of Ion. Yeah, go look up at the repos, uh, run a node, uh, let us know if you have problems. Um, You know, if you're a developer, download the libraries, work with it. And um, I'd love to see some PRs come in or some
0: issues followed. Right. your Twitter handle, just for those people that want to follow the work you're doing in particular.
1: Yeah, CSE Wildcat. It's uh, it a mascot of my, uh, the West, Ivy League West Chico State. Um, right. <laughs> I went to, but yeah, CSU Wildcat at Twitter.
0: Sweet. I'll link it up in the show notes. Cool. Uh, Daniel, really appreciate the time, man. And, uh, you know, best of luck on continuing the progress on the work you're doing. I think it's super, super important. And I, I look forward to seeing how it progresses. Great. Thank you so much. All right, brother. Take care. Bye. I know that was a lot to take on but i hope you found it interesting and that it helped to shed some light on what's going on in the decentralized identity space if you'd like to learn more about Ion, visit identity.foundation forward slash ion and to keep up with daniel follow him on twitter at csu wildcat thanks for tuning in to another episode of closing the loop and we'll see you next time